Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Last week, we talked about the Royal Psalms. So my question to you is, do any of you follow the royals who live across the pond? This popped up on a news feed. And it struck me that it was quite an acceptable statement within our culture. But in God's kingdom, this is a no-go. We cannot do this. Unforgiveness is not how God responds to his creation, and nor should we to one another. We're going to talk about those two sides of forgiveness today together. What a great week it has been spent on Psalm 51. We could not read it in our group without tearing up because it is so poignant to all of us in our lives. Believers have experienced a radical breach with the power of sin by virtue of their union with Christ. I want to just shout Yahoo when I read this. And in Psalm 32 we read, The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. But regrettably, the breach does not mean that we sin no more. Our good and all-knowing God has a plan for our restoration, which we probably need to use daily. And it is repentance. It is not condemnation, but it is God's tender mercies, because he whom he loves, he disciplines. This is what Washington looks like. God's kingdom is sometimes described as an upside-down kingdom where it's better to serve than to rule, treat your enemies with love and forgiveness, the first will be last, and where we come to understand that true living comes from dying to self. It is that beautiful truth that brings us back into relationship with God. And the season of fall is a visual statement of that truth that in dying, there is such great beauty. When I finish a study or listen to a podcast or um, a sermon, I like to stop and think, what is my key takeaway from that? Hoping that I can cement at least one idea from what I heard, because if you ask me a few days later, I probably won't be able to tell you much of what I heard. But I hope that the key takeaway gets cemented inside of me deeper and builds on my foundation of faith. So this week, I'm going to share my key takeaway from our lesson with you. It is the Spirit of God at work in our lives that gives us any desire at all to be in his presence. Growing up in a works-based religion My understanding of the power that God has given us to live upright and godly lives was very murky. I was uncertain how to find the strength to be good and prevent incurring punishment. So fear was a significant emotion tied to my understanding of God. The scriptures tell us there is power and influence from the spirit who is in our lives. And that is so comforting. The one who is indwelling us 
will restrain Satan's assaults on us. The scripture gives us this assurance that we have a helper. In 2 Peter, we read, By his divine power, he has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. And there's even more further assurance as we continue in that chapter in Galatians where it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. But, oh, that word, we do succumb to the sinful nature. Nancy Guthrie this week reminded us that sin is the fabric of our humanity. But like King David, we can have confidence in God's unflinching commitment to those who have embraced his covenant from the heart. It is so easy for us to drift away from God and fall into sin, but the pattern we find in the repentant Psalms leads us through steps of reconciliation and renews our fellowship with our holy God. So for the next few minutes, I would like to look closely at what I see as a six-stepped process as it unfolds in David's prayer. I know you've read Psalm 51. Um, I'm going to have the verses up there and quickly read through them as they point to these steps that I think um, we see. A broken David shows us that God does indeed desire a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. David starts the psalm with the restating of who our God is. Number one, emphasize the character of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. God speaks of his nature, and he gives us descriptions of himself throughout Scripture. It is one of the joys of being students of the word. We get to know God better. Sometimes we read of what his characteristics are. Like in the verse from Exodus we read, As the Lord passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed. I love that word because it means he stated authoritatively. He wanted us to pay attention. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintains love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sometimes in scripture, we read about what God acts towards us, his actions. Like in Psalm 57, it says, To God who fulfills his purpose for me, he sends from heaven and saves me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Next week, when we look at the Messianic Psalms, I hope we get to read Psalm 57. He sends from heaven. How did the psalmist know that? Or perhaps you remember probably one of the most well-known verses in Scripture, John 3:16. How does God act? For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
We are all sinners in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And thankfully, our God is holy and full of mercy and compassion for any and all sinners who will cry out to him for forgiveness. Be holy, for I am holy. There are multiple places in Scripture where this statement about God, as well as command to us, are, is stated. But we cannot be holy people without the transforming work of God. It is important to start with a recognition of God's holiness in our repentance posture because it explains how important it is to our Christian walk. The holiness of God magnifies the love that he has when he grants us mercy and grace in response to our repentance. Repentance is our part to becoming holy people, but it is not our work. His work is what transforms us. David speaks about this in Psalm 51 when he says, I want a miracle of creation, a new heart. And who alone is capable of creation? God. The second step in repentance that we see in Psalm 51 is to realize that sin is rebellion against God. In verses 3 and 4 we read, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. God speaks in his word about how he sees sin. It offends him. In Jeremiah, he writes, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Sin offends God. Our third step is to recognize our sinfulness and the tendency to do wrong. In Psalm 51, we read, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Acknowledging and understanding our depravity is what makes us realize our need for the redeeming grace of God. And the extent of our depravity is great. In Scripture, we read, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Or Romans, I'm sure we'll read lots of these in Romans soon. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. These verses, thankfully, are not speaking of us as new creations, like we read about in 2 Corinthians. So I want to be clear on that. But they are speaking of us because, remember, we are in process. And I like this quote I found for setting my understanding of my present state and expectantly looking ahead to my future state. And I want to thank my friend Lenny because she gave me a subscription to Table Talk. And that has been a powerful influence in my life. And in there I read, We are no longer what we were, totally depraved, yet we are not what we will one day be, fully delivered from remaining corruption. 
Understanding that truth is vital if we are to advance in the Christian life. So let's keep looking at the process of repentance by which we are making advances in the Christian life. The fourth step David models for us is to admit our sin. In verse 6 he says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. All have sinned, and that is not a joyous statement, but we can be comforted knowing that God is not surprised by our feelings and our repeated need to come for repentance. And we should not let ourselves be shamed by the evil one when we recognize sin. But we should be awed by what this awareness tells us about God. And Nancy Guthrie stated it so succinctly when she said, conviction is a gift. He is faithful. The benefit of that repentant posture you take is it returns you to fellowship with God. So do you remember back when April spoke and she, out of um, Psalm 1 and she talked about community? And she said, community is the company we keep, the ones we're transparent with, the ones who speak truth into our lives. Community is vital to help reveal the sins we don't easily see. It is the hidden but present realities in our life that birth outward sinful actions. And then she said, we need a Nathan. The Nathan will talk to us about our heinous sin and the wideness of God's mercy. So I'm going to pause right now to ask you a question. Do you have a Nathan? Is there someone in your inner sphere of relationships that can speak into your heart? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment and think of that question. And if you have a name that comes to your mind, I want you to speak it out loud when I say go in this space we're in. Ready? Go. Barb. We could ask each other stories about the name that we called out. Wouldn't that be great to hear? But, Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for giving us this intimate and trustworthy friend in our life. Help us to receive their exhortation in humility so that we may be aware of areas where we need to repent. And we come to the throne because we are invited and welcome there. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to reach out to that person you just thought of, their name that you called out, I hope, and express your gratitude and your willingness to embrace the safety of their loving exhortations to you. I want you to do it today if you can. And if you do not have a name, which is fine, but would you consider beseeching the Lord over the next few days to show you someone or bring someone into your life? And then... Don't be afraid to approach them with a request to be your Nathan. Isn't that a great honor to have someone ask you to be that? Nancy Guthrie wrote that the sign of a truly repentant person is that she wants to be changed by God and empowered by God to forsake the sin that hurts others and offended God so deeply. So step five in the psalm, trust in God's ability to cleanse you. 
in verses 7 through 9, David wrote, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. In verse 10, we have this plea from David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It is a reminder that we need our God to recreate our hearts from the curse of sin. And it is because he does this new creation in us that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our final step is to accept God's forgiveness. In verse 12, David wrote, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. In this psalm, Nancy Guthrie writes, David shows us how a man or a woman, after God's own heart, pursues God and finds their way home when he or she has royally messed up. What we need, she said, is not restraint. Hold us back, God. Why didn't you stop me? We need restoration. One takeaway from Psalm 51 that I hope you have is that no sin is so great that Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. Because in this psalm, we see the sin of adultery, deceit, murder. I think she called um, it rape. Um, abuse of power, cover-up, dishonoring others. And I decided to stop making a list. But we were cautioned to not dismiss like, well, I never did that. But instead to remember that those little sins are not... Um, equally and are not as important they are equally as condemning is what I want to say and that they too require an intentional act of repentance so I see the model of Psalm 51 kind of like a guide for leading us back to God and today I confess to you that I have had an attitude that required repentance as much as David's actions did here in Psalm 51 my sin was holding back forgiveness with an attitude of claiming the right to bear resentment. Resentment means a feeling of indignant displeasure or persistent ill will. And I use this in the present tense for me because I am still aware that there is some cleanup needed in my heart. Reaffirming each truth of, of repentance as seen in Psalm 51 is needed by me to return to those steps of going through each part as I come before God in humility. Harboring resentment for an injustice is an emotional response. And it's seen in 100 repentance psalms, and in them we find evidence of the psalmist claiming he was unjustly attacked. We read, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme against me. Or those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Or this one, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst about me. 
So I stand here not as an anomaly in my response to injustice. We all feel a little resentment. But the New Testament specifically speaks to what our godly response should be to this resentment. It tells us, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And we do this because we are the sons of our Father God who is in heaven. Forgiveness is a familial trait. We should be like our Father. Jesus, when he was unjustly accused, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Well, one other command in the New Testament that I didn't yet share with you is because it's been the zinger for me. Over the past 10 years, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And ladies, I have to remind us that scripture is very clear. When God gives us our commands, refusal to obey God's commands is sin. It was April 2009, so it's actually been more than 10 years, and I suddenly found myself at the center of a staff shakedown. Accusations were made, hearsay was brought up, Reports and evaluations were claimed to exist, but they could not be found, but no defense was permitted. It was mid-April, and the school year ended June 2nd. I was in my fifth year of teaching at a private school when I was told I would not have a contract for the next year. Even with legal counsel, we were unable to change the outcome, and it was most devastating. There were four of us on staff, including the principal, who were dismissed that year. Our exit was very quiet. There was no gossip or malice that bubbled up. I felt that I handled myself extraordinarily well, except a deep offense was planted and rooted in my heart. David's sins were sins of commission. Mine was a sin of omission. I had strongholds of unforgiveness towards my accusers and a refusal to forgive and bless them. I needed the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, It is a good thing to be without a trouble, but it is a better thing to have a trouble and know how to get grace enough to bear it. David Platt, in his expository on Psalm 51, said, There are really four simple yet significant truths you need to grasp. These four essential truths condense and simplify our understanding of what genuine confession does for us in this journey of sanctification with God. 
He gives us a succinct list of the truths that will restore us. Or as Spurgeon said, teach us how to get grace to bear trouble. These four truths have and are continuing to have a healing impact on me. So number one, sin is serious. We may think it's small, but remember, it was just one bite of a piece of fruit that sin and death entered the world. Sin defies God. It is rooted in our nature, and we are prone to it. Sin appears subtly, harms deeply, controls quickly, and devastates painfully. God, throughout the scriptures, tells us how serious sin is. It destroys us. Two, God is gracious. David had no defense for his actions, yet he comes boldly to God and asks him to unsin him. David is asking to be purified, not by human hands, but by God. In the book of Hebrews, we read that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. But do not forget, God's gracious response to our sin was costly. Three, confession is the connection. Confession requires honesty and humility. So name your sin. Religion, says David Platt, can become one of the biggest cover-ups for our sin. We can, we can participate in outward ritual while covering up the inward reality of sin in our lives. We can ignore the wound of sin. But knowing we have God's grace and mercy to take away our sin is what sets our faith, Christianity, apart from every other religion. We have the assurance if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, restoration is the result. God recreates our heart. He reestablishes our joy. Although the consequences of sin may impact our lives, we are restored in three ways. To one, a sincere walk with God. To two, the privilege of being a witness for him in a broken world. And three, the joy of worshiping in spirit and truth again. Forgiveness is giving up resentment. It is to stop wanting to punish someone for an offense. It is, Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, an act of faith. We trust God to be a better justice maker than we are. But Yancey does say, I personally have never found forgiveness easy. But by denying forgiveness to others, we are in effect determining them unworthy of God's forgiveness. And thus so are we. Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive you. He said it in Matthew twice, in Mark, and in Ephesians. But, ladies, Jesus is not making a threat to us. Nope. It is our good Father's teaching that we are to be like Christ. Unforgiveness is a heart issue. 
I love the song that's very popular now, Run to the Father, and it says in there, my soul, my heart needed a surgeon, my soul needed a friend, my heart found a surgeon, my heart, soul found a friend, and I think that's what God wants to do, because, well, <clears throat> sin just is, done, so our good God, in his wisdom, the creator of our pure hearts, has a response to our sin. And it comes when we repent. It is mercy. What we deserve, we don't get. And it is grace. What we don't deserve, we get. John Newton the writer of the hymn we sang at the start today summarized the believer's experience with sin when he said, I am not what I... Oops, I think I went the wrong way. Went to, sorry. There we go. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can heartily join with the apostle by the grace of God... I am what I am. Today, I'd like to close our time um, in praying over you a benediction taken from the scriptures that I think so succinctly and beautifully capsulizes what God's forgiveness is and what repentance does for us. So if you would bow your heads with me, I would like to just read to you from Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Please go forward in this call from God and do what is good. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. We've just been so blessed uh, by Patty's preparation and, and sharing her heart with us, and so I hope you will we'll go and talk to her and tell her as much.